Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 8th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all both on. We've got a lot of topics and a great guest, Miss Antonia uh Antonia Felix is going to join us to speak about her biography of Elizabeth Warren. She's written a number of biographies, but uh, one of the more recent ones, and of course the most timely for our show, uh, would be what she's written on Senator Warren uh, that's gotten a lot of acclaim. So we're going to have her on the show in about 20 minutes. And until then, um, first part of the show, we're going to discuss some Georgia politics because really there was two big events that happened this week. One we've kind of been discussing and leading up to. The other one kind of uh, came as a surprise. So let's talk about the one that we've been discussing, and that is the U.S. Senate seat. When we talked last week, we assumed it would be um, businesswoman Kelly Loeffler would be the pick. There was a chance that it wouldn't, but on Wednesday they held a press conference, or I say a press conference, they held an event because apparently couldn't ask a whole lot. Um, but they held this press event at the governor's uh, office to where um, they introduced her, and then she kind of um, had her first public um, moment as being, I guess, a not a U.S. senator-elect, a U.S. senator-designate. I believe that's what you say when somebody's been designated like her. Um, and she came out pretty conservative out of the gate, right, Tim? <laughs> oh, I'll say she did. Uh, I, I, I tell you, there, there was talk that Kemp's people actually wrote her remarks for, and some of the catchphrases she used seemed to indicate that. Uh, and she's all about Trump and all about the wall and all about being conservative. So uh, she's... Uh, she she said all the right things to try to settle conservatives down, who a lot of whom have not been very happy about this, but we'll get to all that in a minute. So she said the right things. Well, for, for worrying about Collins, I think she said the right things. Um, it, it, or, well, she's or worried like about Collins. Collins, let me tell yes. you. Oh, I think so, too. Well, um, Catherine, I'm going to ask you a kind of different question, and but, but Tim could then respond to it afterwards as well. Um, one thing I thought, kind of thought was interesting, and I looked and I tried to you know find more articles, and, and of course her company back it. I, I didn't know much about it, and then I saw that it was Bitcoin, and I got to thinking, the Republican Party is a, a, a party that's become very anti-science, very anti-future. Uh, that you have a leader of their party that that talks about doesn't like you know modern light bulbs doesn't like modern flushing toilets uh, is afraid of driverless cars just all this innovation what in the world are Georgia Republicans that that listen to this man as the leader of their party gonna think about a lady that owns a firm that uh, runs something as abstract as Bitcoin. Well, I think um, the other piece of that is that her husband owns the runs the company that owns the stock exchange, so that's pretty mainstream. Um, I, I don't know. I think that, you know they haven't really played that up very much. They haven't talked about um, her that part of her corporate life. They've talked a lot more more about the WNBA. I imagine that's because. If you delve into it, it's, you know, Bitcoin, I've, I've listened to at least three podcasts about Bitcoin over the years, and I still don't get it. 
and I'm not stupid. You know, I'm, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty smart. I can figure things out. But so I think that, you know, delving into that is going to be um, problematic for the general population. So uh, I, I don't think it's about I don't think that people would question the innovation or the mod, modernity of it. I think it's just confusing and uh, hard to understand. Uh, but I think that's why they look, they talk more about the WNBA because that's pretty easy to figure out. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. Money is a concept that's kind of abstract. It's just what we've grown into because back, you know, you know, lots and lots of years ago, people, you know, traded shells and pebbles and shiny rocks and sand dollars, and that was money. And today, I mean, if you – went to some other time and place and said, hey, I'm going to give you this piece of paper, and it has this dead dude's picture on it, and, you know, that means something, they'd probably think that was weird. And so money's kind of an abstract concept as it is. Even more so, I'm going to give you this plastic, this piece of plastic, (laughs) and you're going to run it through a machine, and somehow money is going to change hands. Exactly so, right. Yeah. I mean, so it's all, all super abstract. And then, but but Tim, kind of piggyback on what Catherine's saying, uh, WNBA is not exactly a, a bedrock conservative league. You wouldn't think, would it be? No, it wouldn't be. But as we have seen in this age, conservatives are willing to overlook a lot of things as long as they win, as long as they have the upper hand. I mean, nude pictures don't phase them. Uh, yeah. Vile language doesn't change the fact that they're God's party, you know, in their mind, uh, that sort of thing. So owning somebody, something like the WNBA, that's okay. Cause she's for Trump and the, you know, the wall. And, and Second Amendment. You know. She made a big point about Second Amendment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, the Second Amendment and uh, and and you know all the good talking points. So it'll all settle down for. Although I don't know if Collins will settle down, but uh, no, they 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 tend to overlook those types of things. Now, if it was a Democrat that owned a WNBA franchise, suddenly that would be all different. They'd be they'd or, be saying all kind of stuff. Or if a Democrat owned a, was running a Bitcoin operation. Oh yeah, that would really be something there. <laughs> well, now let's flip this thing, um, Catherine. You know, her her other interests don't line up with Republican politics, but then Republican politics, particularly the brand that she's trying to sell. Because of Doug Collins, including the wall, which is one of the you know really um, hard harder to swallow positions, I think of the current Republican Party. How does the Bitcoin and WNBA world look upon all that? Well, I don't think that Bitcoin is um, necessarily a liberal or conservative idea. I think it's just, I don't think, I think it's vanilla as far as that. I don't think it's one or the other. Um, and the WNBA, I mean, it's a sports franchise. I, I mean, I think that there's, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not big on sports. I don't know who attends WNBA games or who supports them in whatever way. I mean, so I, I don't, I don't see it as a, um, a big, um, you know, divider. I don't, I just don't see it, but, but that's me. I'm maybe someone has a different look outlook on it. Yeah. I, I will tell you this from my understanding, it is maybe seen as, uh, one of the, you know, of all the sports leagues, the friendliest uh, uh, to gay and lesbian communities. And so um, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. Now, talking about her time with the WNBA, Tim, uh, there was a picture, and um, in August, I found out it was pretty recently, uh, Stacey Abrams got put on the board 
of the um, Atlanta Dream. Now, teams will have boards that uh, in some cases may even be just ceremonial, but when she got put on the board, we're talking about Stacey Abrams, do you think Kelly Loeffler had any idea that she might be in the U.S. Senate uh, within six months of that? Uh, certainly not, and nobody else did, including Kim. Uh, but let me tell you this, that picture of her and Stacey Abrams together, you will, we will all see that uh, photograph again in an ad for some Republican running against her uh, yeah. next November. Now, that's that's just going to happen. Now, I don't know if it'll be Collins, although I think it may very well be. Uh, it could be all of them. <laughs> Uh, at, but but whichever Republicans, yeah, that's right. Whichever Republican runs ag- against uh, her is going to use that photograph of Stacey Abrams, along with a beautifully written out, typed out list that will be easily read by the television viewer of all the Democrats over the years that she has donated money to. So that's all coming. Those those two things right there uh, are going to be used against her and used against her heavily because they push buttons. Uh, Owning a sports franchise does probably not push buttons. But that, being friendly with the other side in any way, shape, or form, that's traitorous there. That's just the way it is. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say Doug Collins does get in the race, and this matchup between them sucks a ton of the oxygen out of the room. And let's say Matt Lieberman is the only candidate, and he really doesn't catch fire. Catherine, do you think the picture then, can she somehow jujitsu this thing to where then she kind of backs off of some of this rhetoric, tries to maybe run a little more as a moderate, thinking she can siphon off some Democratic votes to beat uh, Collins. Wow. Hmm. That would be um, that would be some fancy footwork for someone who hasn't been in electoral politics before. Yeah, and I'll say this: that would be an indictment of the Democratic Party of Georgia to not, you know, fill the better campaign that would allow her to get away with that. Um, well, in many ways, but well, but I'm just saying, if that happens to where it's well, like the the game looks like it's between those two and anybody else is an also ran. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, if there's a runoff and it's Collins and her, a lot of people that voted Democratic in the first round, if they want to go back and vote, what are they going to do? Well, they're not going to vote for Collins, you know. Right. They're going to vote for her. On the other hand, if she is trying to out-Trump Collins, what you know, what will Democratic voters do then if any of them feel like me? I mean, just anywhere near me. Uh, they, they probably are not going to go vote. Yeah, uh, I got a feeling there's going to be a stronger can- uh, Democrat than Lieberman in that race. I, I would I'm hope not so, sure, and, but I, I'm thinking so. And, and I'll tell you this: I think you could you could put anybody on the ballot and put a D beside their name. And with this jungle primary race being with the presidential primary, you would get one of the two candidates would be a Democrat. I'm talking about then. You then who's the other one? Race. Her or Collins? Well, that's what I'm saying. It would be it would be like uh, folks saying, "Well, we want to stop Collins somehow." Um, you know, and and she seems like okay. We would rather it be her and um, the Democratic candidate, the runoff, so we don't get Collins. Uh, but if she continues this kind of rhetoric, I don't think she's gonna uh, seem like you know any more palatable uh, than Collins you know, would to Democrats. Let me ask y'all: Isn't she gonna have to continue that rhetoric? She cannot let anyone run to the right of her in this state in the Georgia Republican Party. She just can't do that because rural voters that Republicans desperately need to win will not warm up to her. 
Right, and also yeah. she, she's got to be she, she's going to be serving for a couple months before that primary, and so she's got to vote right and you know be right there with Trump and the other you know wacko Repu- Republicans in order to you know prove her bona fides in uh, in in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she may get a, a reprieve there because so little legislation. Uh, may even get through that she'd have to vote oh, on much true. other than the Trump trial, uh, you know, should the articles of impeachment go through. Um, well, let's kind of move on to our other topic here, and, and this is kind of the one we weren't expecting. Late in the week, um, Georgia U.S. Uh, Congressman Tom Graves announced that he is um, resigning from Congress. He's 49 years old and then looks really uh, young for 49. Looks like he could have continued to serve. Um, pretty far up in the seniority. I believe he's like number two on the Appropriations Committee. At one point, thought he might get to be the chair. Um, he cited, of all things, his, his wife's about to retire as a teacher. And, um, you know, with, with her retiring, it just seemed like a good time to retire, which she apparently still, you know, um, teaches in the district, not up in suburban Virginia, sur- suburban Maryland, or in D.C. Um, so she would actually be free to then move up to D.C. full time. Um, of all things, but, you know, I think I kind of take him at his word uh, that he actually is kind of tired of it, wants to get out and do on something else in life. What do you think, Tim? Well, I, I sort of agree with you, but um, this guy was the dean of the delegation here in Georgia. And there's some loose speculation, and I say very loose because there's absolutely nothing to back it up, but there's just some speculation out there that he might run against Loeffler. I do know this. This announcement was not expected by anyone, and um, even, even the Democratic response seemed to be hastily thrown together. They just applauded the decision as a sign that the GOP is in trouble, uh, including in Georgia, because of Donald Trump, and they welcomed his retirement, let it go with that. And Republicans absolutely didn't know what to say except to, you know, just make nice and say what a great guy he was and let it go with that. And next thing we know, we got a list of possible candidates emerging, so... Yeah, yeah, we can't even get into that part of the discussion yet, most likely. Um, Catherine, uh, you know, you don't live in that district like Tim and I do. How surprised were you still by the, his retirement? I was surprised because that seemed like, you know, he could probably stay there for a while, right? I mean, oh yeah, not like there's, <laughs> not like there's a Democrat that's going to be able to prevail up there. I don't think. No, it has no. to be a very special Democrat. Well, let so, me put uh, it this way, Catherine. His last race, he got 77% of the vote up here. Of course, well, his opponent uh, yeah. was in jail, but... Yeah, yeah he, he was a very special <laughs> Democrat, but that's special yeah. in quotations. Not special like that certain guy or late or woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, that gentleman was uh, a sight. Um, yeah. Well, uh, but, you know, so he did retire, um, and, and I just say this. If he did want to run for the Senate seat, like maybe he wanted to be appointed to it, but let's say he is thinking, well, you know, either I'll challenge challenge Kelly Loeffler with Collins, or I'll challenge her and I'll challenge her instead of Collins. Would resigning and talking about how much you want to move on to the next phase of life would that really be a good setup to then try to run for Senate? What do you think, Tim? No, no, I don't. I don't think it would be. But on the other hand, maybe he doesn't want to tip his hand right now. Uh, I could, I could see that, and he could come back later and say, you know, I was going to retire, folks, but there's just been such a uh, a large groundswell of support and love for yeah, me, blah, blah, begging blah. me to get in this thing that I just can't say no to my supporters and the great people of Georgia, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you know how it is in politics. Uh, if you say no, that's one thing, uh, but it's not hell no, you see. 
so you can always walk it back if it's just a simple, I don't, you know, foresee doing, you, you know how the talk goes. I don't foresee yeah. me doing that. And right now I'm concentrating on blah, 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 blah. So uh, we'll we'll see, but I don't think we've heard the last politically of Tom Graves. I I just couldn't imagine why he would walk away at this time, unless unless he's already figured out that the Republicans are not going to take back control of the House, and uh, he's about as far up the totem pole as he's going to move. Maybe it's that. A lot of people don't yeah. like to be in the minority. It's that simple. And, Tim, I think you may be on something there, that they are in the minority. Odds are they're going to stay in the minority because does the complexion of this election look drastically different than 2018? I don't think so. Um, you know, Donald Trump being on the ballot may help here and there in a district, but then you also have a few of the districts like Georgia 7 that may trend a little more Democratic as each year goes by. North Carolina, I think Democrats are poised to pick up two seats. Will Hurd's retiring in Texas. That looks like a pickup. You know, and it's like that one Minnesota seat um, looks like the big pickup opportunity uh, for Republicans. So, you know, Democrats pick up four or five. Republicans pick up one. Republicans and, are no further than they were. Um, so I think and, you could be honest about the minority. And you've got three times as many Republicans that is – that have announced their retirement as Democrats, which means a lot more seats, including in some swingy districts, to defend for them. And I ain't even counting the uh, districts where Republicans are stepping away to run for something else. So they got a lot more territory to defend. I see no way, barring a complete collapse next year, that the Republicans could even make the, the House competitive. Can y'all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see it. Uh, Catherine, I'm going to kind of ask you something Tim brought up. Um, you know, step away to run for another office. We talked about him running for Senate. Um, unless he runs for this Senate seat, and I certainly don't think he's going to challenge David Perdue, and Brian Kemp is, is in the governor's office, because I don't think any of the down-ballot uh, races are necessarily a step up, what would he run for? Uh, that would be better than his spot in Congress currently? Well, you know, maybe he maybe he wants to maybe he wants to be in Georgia. Maybe he's willing to be like, you know, Secretary of State or is he an attorney? I don't I don't think attorney he's General. an attorney. But once again, no, uh, all those folks just won their office, um, and nobody seemingly is going to move up, and I don't think anybody's unpopular. So it's just – right now there's a, a kind of an entrenchment in Republican circles. With this Loeffler appointment, um, all the, the people that are in um, offices, there's nowhere to move up because everybody seemingly runs for reelection, and, you know, in a – you know, two and a half uh, more years, and then would serve four more. Um, and, and then uh, Senate seat Purdue's running again, and, you know, Loeffler just got put in, and if Collins is the one to challenge her from the right, it's like all the, the cards on the dance card, uh, I mean, all the slots on the dance card are full. Um, so, well, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he, yeah. maybe he wants to take a break and retire with his wife and, you know, Raise chickens or something. Who knows? But <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, I think Tim makes a good point. Like we're we're sort of assuming that Collins is going to jump in and run against Loeffler, but maybe maybe they've made a deal and and uh, he's going to run for that run against her. I mean, maybe there's so, so many things that there's so many things that can happen and so many conversations that go on in the halls and, you know, bars and restaurants in Washington that, you know, there could be some kind of something brewing that we, we just won't know about until it happens. Yeah, well, let's explore that. And I really do think Collins is going to be the one to run. I don't, I don't really think it's going to be uh, Tom Graves to run. But um, 
let's say Tim that that Graves decided to run and and, and Collins decided he wanted to stay in his Gainesville uh, house seat. Well, actually, let's put a pin in this, and we'll come back to this discussion in just a little bit. But we're really excited to have um, author of just so many books, Miss Antonia Felix. And if I said your first name wrong, please correct me, Miss Felix. No, that was perfect. Oh, I get it right every once in a while. But we're so glad to have <laughs> you on the show. Um, I think you've written more than 20 books, uh, nonfiction, mainly biographies. And the one we want to discuss, of course, is Senator Warren, who's running for president. Uh, but before we get to that, just give us a little bit about your background and, and anything that may be why you're interested in a lot of political folks. Well, my background, I, I started writing uh, political biographies. Uh, almost, well, about 25 years ago, living in New York City and uh, had my first chance with a, a little book about, uh, it was just a little paperback about then new governor of New Jersey, Christy Todd Whitman. And we didn't have very many uh, female governors at that time. As a matter of fact, I think she may have been the only one that year. So that was a very novel happening in politics and it was wonderful to um to research her background and and new jersey politics a little bit so after that book um people seemed to be interested in my work and i was able to get contracts for similar types of um of books uh, particularly about women in power supreme court justices and uh, senators and all kinds of people like that. So it's been a fascinating career. Well, you kind of answered a question I kind of had floating out there. Is why did you pick <laughs> Elizabeth Warren as a subject matter? And obviously she's one of the most powerful women in our government. Is there anything else uh, that caused you to decide this is the time to write that book? Well, it's funny. Way back when she was just getting started, on her Senate, her first Senate campaign started back in late 2011 and then uh, really kicked into gear in 2012. Like a lot of people, I saw that video, that YouTube video that went viral where she was at a fundraiser and she was doing this impromptu little speech about the social contract and about the fact that uh, those who do really well in our, in our country, people who have companies that do well, they need to remember that uh, they didn't do that by themselves, that they had all of the public works supporting them and public education that was educating their employees and all of that sort of thing. It, it was an answer to the question that was very was coming up in a political climate where uh, Republicans were kind of complaining that there was this um, – that there was sort of a consensus against capitalism itself, you know, or something like that. And it's no, it's just that we're all in this together and um, you, you need to, to share back. You need to put back into this entire beautiful system what you have, uh, you know, it's, it's benefited you a lot, but you're not living on an island. You need, you need to be part of this. And that message the way she she put it a lot more eloquently than I just did, but it it seemed to really spark a lot of people's interest. That's why I don't know a million views of that happened within a few days, and I was one of those people who watched it and I thought, wow, this is actually a real progressive candidate, and she knows how to speak to these things. That was kind of a tough question someone put to her, and she riffed with this answer. That was really compelling. And so I started kind of keeping a file on her and started to read about her, learn about her. And not long after that, I wrote up a professional book proposal and gave it to my agent. And at the time, to do a biography of her, I thought, well, this is, this is a really interesting political person. Her journey is not typical of, uh, of Senate candidates. And um, it just it didn't work out that at the time um, we didn't get any uh, interest from publishers at the time, but I continued that file. I kept track of her and I kept uh, tabs on her and uh, was was always interested in, in keeping watch on on her career. And then finally in 2017, 
I was having lunch with a different agent in New York, and she said, well, you know, Antonio, what, what's next? Who do you want to write about now? What's, what, what's the next thing you want to do? Do you have any, any interests? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> and I pulled out of my handbag this new updated and revised book proposal for a, a biography of Senator Elizabeth Warren. And she took it, she glanced through it, and uh, as we picked at our dessert, and <laughs> and she said, you know, I, I can sell this. I, this, this. The timing is perfect for this. And she did. So it was just one of those things. Years later, it was time for this book to happen, and it did. Yes, I think your timing is right based on how long it took me on hold to actually get the book to listen to. And that kind of brings me to my next question. I listened to your biography, and I listened to Senator Warren's autobiography, and um, as you, you went deeper on some areas being a biography um, than sometimes pulling going autobiography. But I noticed in her autobiography she didn't talk much, if any, about that transition from being a Republican all the way through – you know, Bob Dole running against Bill Clinton in 96 to being not just a Democrat, but very a very progressive Democrat. When you did your research, what did you find about that transition, which is, you know, in a, within the terms of her life, relatively uh, recent? It's a very interesting turning point. She's, you know, she's had a few fascinating turning points in her life as she has evolved as a scholar and as just as a human being and as a politician. And that big one really happened uh, as a result of what she was researching as a legal scholar at, at the time at the University of Texas in Austin. Her work with two other co-researchers was about bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy in the United States, and what drove people, who really were the people who were uh, filing for bankruptcy. There were a lot of assumptions out there, but there wasn't, and, and there was a lot of numbers research, but there wasn't research that really looked at who these people are. What kind of, are they middle class? Are they, everybody assumed they were working class or just people who were trying to game the system uh, no, but nobody had done any real qualitative studies to find out who these people are and to find out exactly what is happening. So they did a, a kind of a radical different type of research and sent out these surveys and had people who were filing for bankruptcy actually tell their stories on the backside of a survey about their bankruptcy situation. And as she read through these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of surveys, she got it, it was gut, gut-wrenching because she heard all these stories about people who uh, had a divorce or a medical emergency or uh, a, some, a job loss. There, there turned out to be this, these patterns that developed that there were a handful of things that would just set a middle-class family that owned, you know, had, had their own home and worked hard and all that sort of thing. But everybody seemed to there was such a chance of living on the edge where something like that, some kind of a crisis could just send you over and you couldn't get caught up. And bankruptcy served as the last resort and served a very specific place in our economy for, you know, for a remedy for that to give people a fresh start. So it was the, her own work in doing that kind of research and hearing what's really happening with people's lives that got her to look at our, free market system, the way we do capitalism in this country from another perspective, because she's, she's always been a diehard supporter of the free market. She thinks capitalism is great, but it needs to be a capitalism that's regulated and that really has the entire society in mind instead of just, you know, a small fraction of people because it leaves too many people behind. So that was enough of a, of a turnaround in her understanding of what's really happening in our economy for her to say, I just can't uh, get behind a party anymore that, that doesn't believe that the free market should, should work much more broadly for our entire society. And she switched and that was a passionate decision. And like I said, just really based on her feet on the ground research into that area. And, um, 
that <laughs> it it says a lot about her as a person. I mean, you can kind of imagine maybe a more stuffy kind of researcher who would wouldn't even try to get that side of the story because that's the way all the research had gone up until then. And she admits she was one of the people who thought, you know, these these are people who just can't figure it out and they're they're just kind of trying to cheat and and they you know, they're she she held those same denigrating assumptions of bankruptcy filers as was just the the uh the status quo perspective around the country. But then she realized that's totally not true. And as a scholar, and you, you, David knows you've uh, you've been a scholar of education yourself. You don't write down one sentence that's not backed up by some kind of fact and evidence. So she's known. She's really known how the system works for a very long time. Yes. Well, what what a great insightful answer to that. I have one more question. I got to get it to my co-host. Um, but you know, in our political uh, geography these days, we have what's called the coastal elites, and we have the flyover country, and that's overly simplistic. But Elizabeth Warren, she currently represents uh, Massachusetts, Boston. She's from Harvard. She's, you know, by people that just know her from that, she's probably seen as the archetype of coastal elite. But yet she was born and raised in rural Oklahoma and seems completely comfortable when, she, you know, you talk about her going back home and doing things in Oklahoma, um, how is she going to be able to convey that as she moves through these primaries that she's not just this person of Harvard and Boston, but has these Oklahoma roots? Yeah, I think that her her campaign staff probably stays up all night asking themselves that same question. <laughs> and it's it's funny how some people – I think there are a lot of people out there who just equate Harvard with, yeah, she's a she's an East Coast elitist. She's she's Harvard. Well, <laughs> the message that I, I'm sure she tries to get out um, is that she, her education, her background was all public schools, all the way. Rutgers Law School, that's a public law school in in New Jersey. Um, she finished her undergrad at a, a, a public un, public school down in Houston, Texas. And she worked her way up the ranks because she was a brilliant scholar. And I'm not saying that because, you know, I I do admire the woman, but you don't make it to the Ivy League as a professor and a researcher, you know, because you're a good teacher in front of the classroom. You make it to Harvard to teach on that faculty because you, you have a brilliant body of work behind you. And they they ask you, you know, you don't go knocking on the door. They come to you, and she turned them down a couple of times. So, so her her Harvard affiliation is, you know, a very interesting thing about her. Um, that her campaign really doesn't talk about. Nobody in this country likes to talk about the class divides, right? But she has not only broken the glass ceiling as a woman being uh, in, you know, a legal scholar and a, a, a law professor. There aren't a lot of, well, there are fewer women in that field, and especially back in the 70s when she was getting started, very few women in that field. Uh, work her, working her way up the ranks to her full pr- professorship and then ultimately landing at Harvard, that was breaking the, the glass ceiling as a woman, but it also uh, even more profoundly broke the class barrier. There was one gentleman, um, one of her colleagues that back down in Texas who she taught with for several years who told me, you know, we don't have any people on this faculty and Harvard doesn't have any people on their factory whose father was a janitor. <laughs> and he wanted to bring that point home that it's a big deal when somebody breaks that class barrier in the Ivy Leagues. She has distinguished herself as a scholar, but she's kept her authenticity um, as she's a person from Oklahoma, as you said. And it is a very big deal that she made it up the ranks as she did. It's just completely a testament to how 
smart she is and the kind of rigorous research that she's done and how respected she is in her field. So, yeah, she's been a Harvard professor for a long time, but how did she get there? She didn't get there by, you know, going to um, boarding school and then going to private schools and the whole Ivy League route. She got it there just really based on her merits as a, as a scholar. And I think that the more people hear from her, they, they're going to see that kind of down-home, grassroots, Oklahoma type of person that uh, has worked her way up but has maintained very strong ties to the place she came from and the, just the person that she's always been. There's, there's just a lot of consistency there. Yes, uh, another great answer. I'm going to pass this thing along to Catherine, then Tim, uh, for some more questions. Catherine? Thank you so much for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. I, hey, Catherine, I, I thank you. The, I have not had the opportunity to read your book, but I'm looking forward to reading it over the holidays. <laughs> or listening <laughs> great, to it, thank I'm you. not sure which, but um, I wanted to ask, uh, what, what, what did you find? Was there any one or, or two things that you found uh, most surprising about Senator Warren? Like, what, were there, you know, just like, wow, I never expected to learn this about her? Hmm. Well, at first, you know, when I was first learning about her, that, that point that we were just talking about a minute ago about her having been a Republican, and she was an independent at one point, too. I think she had voted that way in at least one election. That came out of the left field for me. That really surprised me. I had just figured that she had been a a liberal progressive from day one because it's so much, uh, you know, obviously so much who she is. So that, that was a big surprise for me to learn. Um, also, the fact that um, she had, that she had, was a, was a college dropout at one point. That was interesting. She got a, a scholarship to go to George Washington University in D.C. right out of high school because she was this uh, top national winning debater in high school. And the debate, there was a debate scholarship at George Washington University, very, very competitive. And she went there, and, but at the end of her sophomore year, her, her old boyfriend from, uh, from her Oklahoma City High School came back into her life, and he had been making his career as a mathematician and was working for NASA and was kind of all set up and swept her off her feet again, and she decided uh, to to leave school and get married and they moved, they, they were in Texas where he had, was, had set up his career. So this was a surprise for me that um, she, she went back of course and finished that degree. She was very restless about that, but something I really go into quite a bit in that part of the book is the fact that it was the 1960s, the late 1960s when she was in high school and she was so torn between this traditionalist um, pull that she had from where she grew up and her mother in particular who wanted her to just go to college. If she wanted to go to college, go there to find a good husband. But, you know, get these ideas yeah. of a career and all of that out of your head. She was always bucking her mother on that point. It was real contentious. Um, so she was pulled by that in one direction and in the other, other direction, just pulled by her innate ambition that she just felt she had a lot to do. She wanted, she wanted to do in her life. So the fact that she's been upfront about that, uh, was kind of surprising because I, I don't know that everybody in the political spotlight would want to reveal that. Yeah. You know, for a while I had a hard time with my mom because I, uh, you know, we really disagreed on this, and we fought about it, and we fought about it hard. I thought that was really interesting and, and kind of surprising. Well, I think that I mean, I I'm a, a younger than her, but I was I have brothers that are like her about her age, and I think that was a common problem for right. some yeah. young young women in uh, in that era. I was fortunate to have a mother that wasn't like that, but. It was rare. I mean, most uh, mothers wanted their daughters to 
get married and have a family and maybe have a little career on the side or something. But, (laughs) you know, I think it's true. I mean, I think that's true that, you know, it might be, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, exceptions to that, but because we have, you know, a great group, a great piece of our women, women's population that are very successful. But I think there was, there was much more pressure then than there is now. No, you're uh, absolutely right. Yeah, you're right. And I, I did have one other question um, that's not related to this book, but I just wondered how, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued by the fact that you've also written about uh, a lot of musicians. And so how do you pick the, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you came upon the biography <laughs> of Elizabeth Warren. Is that generally how you work? Like you see something and it sort of, piques your interest and then you sort of develop a dossier and try to sell it? Is that generally how it works or? Yeah, it's, it's been kind of half and half. I'll, I'll find a, a subject I'm really interested in and, and take that to an agent. Sometimes um, I've had a publisher contact me and ask if I'm interested in writing something that they really think is is a subject that they'd like to, to publish, um, somebody they'd like they'd like to publish about. So it's happened both ways. And as far as the musical figures go, I've written about um, Andrea Bocelli, and I've written about Harry Connick Jr., and I've written about um, another, a couple of other guys. Um, I have a musical background, and I that's the reason I was in New York with my husband when I started my career. We were both aspiring opera singers so we were very much in the music world and publishing was my day job and it turned into a writing career very very unexpectedly you know every artist who goes to New York City whether you're an actor or a singer or a dancer or Broadway performer you've got to have that eight hour day 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 job in order to uh, to survive so I was working at Bantam Doubleday Dell Publishing uh, working in their marketing department, writing catalog copy and things like that, and doing all of my singing and and uh, studying uh, music on the side, and it just was an interesting path that uh, I didn't expect, and here I am still in the publishing business. And we're 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 so grateful for that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Again, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, good, good evening, Ms. Felix. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, Thanks. In your research of the life of Elizabeth Warren, do you think that the word driven is a fair word to apply to any description of the senator? You know, there's kind of a fine line that I feel with her, because driven, driven is a loaded word. I think it's got some, some connotations to it that could be a little more on the negative side than I think really captures her. We tend to think of somebody who's driven as someone who is so focused um, on not only what they care about, but the fact that they want to be the one running the show, that it can have, at least to me, kind of has that negative connotation. Um, Mm -hmm. But in her case, in her case, she has always been motivated by Mm -hmm. what she believes in and and fixing, trying to remedy things that she sees really need to be remedied and runs off of that passion that I wouldn't necessarily call Drive. I guess it's kind of getting into semantics a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, but but that's the way I see it. I mean, she's certainly been ambitious and um, uh, has wanted to to do her very best and kind of go beyond the boundaries in her field as as a legal scholar, and that's what gotten her. That's what has gotten her uh, where where she was as uh, mm-hmm. you know one of the major scholars in the country. So there is that, but um, I think that I think the word "driven" just carries a little more to it than I would really apply to her. Mm-hmm. And so she has gotten to this point in 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 her life and in, and in our history and in our political history. 
And with that comes the $64,000 question that especially of 2020, everyone is asking, and it is this. Is she electable on a national level? Yeah, and I I don't think that she would have gotten into the race if she didn't believe that she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is electability? You know, it's an interesting, it, it's a real fascinating part of our political system. What do the American people really think electability is? And you ask 20 people and they're going to have 20 <laughs> different answers to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at least as far as the the uh, the popular vote goes, uh, America is obviously very ready to elect a woman. So gender mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be an obstacle anymore. I don't think we have to factor that in. And mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna hear through the f- following months. We're gonna hear a lot about um, about people uh, criticizing a, a woman candidate as you know using those words shrill instead of confident or you know something like that we're going to hear all of that kind of stuff that just goes with the territory um but electability i think it it stands on the substance of what that candidate is going to um put forth as the way to address the most important issues of our time and what what the important issues are to working people and of course, she's laid out everything. I mean, she's laid out A to Z plans of what she, uh, how how she would actually go after it and how she would pay for it. And I think everybody's pretty familiar with what those main issues are. But uh, as electability, as as I was saying before, I think the more people get to see her in a broader context, get to see her more than just the thirty second sound bites or a five-minute interview on MSNBC or something like that, they're going to start to uh, understand that she is genuine about her motives and genuine about uh, that, that she really does care about these things and that she spent her entire career uh, on the economy of the middle class. She really knows her stuff. This isn't mm-hmm. a political uh, you know, ploy that, well, this is what – important now so I think that's what I'll focus on that's now that it's it's where she comes from so I think her personality really does make her electable her her background um, as as a scholar really understanding the economy makes her electable her experience uh, even before she came to the Senate as uh, leading the, the TARP bailout watchdog panel and all of that sort of thing that makes her electable, and the fact that she is absolutely d- does not have an intimidated bone in her body when it comes to facing off with a candidate like Donald Trump. Uh, we've seen her in action um, on those, the, you know, Senate hearings. For example, when she was taking to task the CEO of Wells Fargo, making him uh, <laughs> answer for grueling questions about why he allowed his his uh, his bank to do this criminal conduct time after time after time and all of the evidence sitting by, you know, next to her, uh, he, he had nowhere to go. He had to be honest. And, you know, we saw all of that happen. She knows how to, how to win a fight. Uh, She knows how to bring the right evidence and, and uh, to not be intimidated by bullying or anything like that. It would be it would be so interesting to see her facing off with him after <laughs> all the the water that's gone onto the bridge so far between those two, at mm-hmm. least in the media or on mm-hmm. Twitter. So, so yeah, electability. I would definitely say um, she's a a very strong viable candidate. And with that, I'm going to thank you and send it back to David. David. Yes, Miss Felix, um, thank you so much for coming on tonight. But before you go, I'm going to kind of have a two-parter that you can uh, answer however you'd like. Um, First, uh, of course, any guests we have on, if there's social media or other websites that they can uh, find out more about you, want you to share that. But also, 
you being an author, if you have a project that you're ready to talk about coming soon, you could feel free to preview that as well. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thanks. Well, my website is very simple. It's it's AntoniaFelix.com. And uh, you can find my books there. You can find reviews and a little bit more about me, any all of that sort of thing. So thank you very much for letting me share that. And my books are available online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place. So thanks, thanks for letting me say that, too. And I'm excited to talk about what I'm working on right now. And it's, it's a little bit um, out, of, <laughs> out of the lines of what I have been publishing because I'm very focused right now on doing research about uh, racial equity in education. I, I kind of recently got my doctorate in that field, and I'm co-writing with two very prominent women who are working in this field here in Minnesota, I'm co-writing with them a book for school principals um, about how they can really lead for racial equity in their schools. And the book is based on an institute that my two colleagues have run for about nine years. And we're really excited. We're almost halfway through with the book. And so that's for a, a different audience than I've usually written for. It's for a specific audience of those school leaders. But um, it's been fascinating work and, and really gratifying work to to be, uh, you know, using all the, the stuff that we understand so far about how this works to bring that to principals all over the country who are very serious about this absolutely crucial aspect of public education. Yes, well, you've been so insightful today on this topic, and we know, A, you have um... – more political biographies that might be wonderful to discuss. And also, it, when that book comes out, it may have you back on, because uh, for me, it'll be like being in Dr. Asa Hilliard's class again at Georgia State. I, I don't know if you there you go. his work as a part of what you're doing, but he was one of the many people that uh, did extensive research on those kinds of topics. Um, but uh, once I again, would love to come back and talk about that book. Thank you. Most definitely. We'll look for that to get published, and um, but we'll maybe even get you back sooner to speak about some of these other political biographies you've done. But, but tonight has been so wonderful since we know that Elizabeth Warren is one of the most relevant candidates in the 2020 race thus far. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. I, I'm so uh, appreciative that you've had me on. Thank you so much. Oh, thank well, you thank again. You for, thank you, ma'am. All, everything you've done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yes. All right. That was Miss um, Antonia Felix, um, author of so many books, but the most recent one, uh, her book on Elizabeth Warren, her work, her fight, her work, her life. Um, it's available in hardcover and paperback and audio CD and Kindle and, and, and just all kinds of sources. Um, pretty much anywhere books are sold, I think you can find it because it's so widely distributed. Um, guys, uh, I think we've got about just a few minutes, and that's okay. Uh, we were talking about Tom Graves, and let's kind of finish up with the discussion. Um, by next week, we may know more people that are going to run. Um, but but what names do you expect to get in, Tim? Well, um, you've heard of uh... – Jason uh, Navatati from the Paulding County School Board, State Representative Steve Tarvin, uh, State Representative Katie Dempsey, who we know well, um, David, uh, the Georgia House Minority uh, Whip, Trey Kelly has been rumored, State Senator Jeff Mullis, who we also know up this way. And that's just the Republicans. Uh, Democrats... I've heard a couple of names, and I can only say I'm not at liberty yet to say out publicly who they are because I really don't have their permission. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I certainly think that the Democratic candidate will be more viable than last time, um, but but that this district is still <laughs> going to be tough. Where I think it is going to be interesting is, and you mentioned one that's very interesting to me. If a Katie Dempsey decides to run, she has to vacate her House seat, 
which encompasses a ton of the city of Rome, thus yep. making it much more of a viable seat and an open scenario right. in a democratic trending year. That's where I think this thing's going to get more politically interesting. Obviously, on the Republican side, somebody's probably going to win that congressional seat, and that's going to be interesting to them, of course. But then it may open up a few seats if people decide to run. I think of that entire district from Paulding up to Dade County over to Dalton. Um, Katie Dempsey's house seat might be the most likely pickup uh, for Democrats on the lower underneath level. Um, mm -hmm. Catherine, uh, anything you've heard on this seat much? I've heard nothing. <clears throat> nothing at all. Yes. Yes, and I think we're just going to have the, to wait and see. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that I think you know, Twitter, Georgia uh, poll, and things like that will discuss, and we'll find out more information. Well, um, guys, just a great show. We got to talk some Georgia politics, but then our guest really broadened our horizons and took us to uh, really across the country and gave us some insightful answers on Elizabeth Warren, someone that we've been discussing but we hadn't had the chance to discuss. And that much detail tonight, and who better than her biographer to have on to discuss her? Uh, but yeah. until next week, yeah. it's been good, Zuvine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world?